Welcome to episode 93 of the Around the Crease podcast. This week, Detroit Country Day head coach Chris Garland discusses Black Lives Matter along with race and lacrosse in this very special episode. Let's get into it. All right. I'm here with uh, Coach Chris Garland. Once again, I think this is like the fourth or fifth time that I've had you on the, the podcast. So you are by far the record holder <laughs> for uh, the most guest experiences. So I really appreciate you, you being on. Um, I know people get really excited. Uh, we've always had really good feedback whenever uh, I've had you on in the past. So I expect more of the same today. Um, you know, I guess I would say I wish it could kind of be under better circumstances um anybody who's listening to this i mean the the state of the world right now is nuts um to put it mildly uh, at any rate um but i want to you know kind of try to take the time to address the black lives matter movement and you know i was thinking about it as kind of as like everything was unfolding i was like you know what you know I, I a lot of people have heard like the silence is violence and i definitely was not a person who wanted to be silent but i also wanted to make sure that you know i kind of figured out the right way to fit um and you know what lax records does and the audience that i have and it just seemed fitting to have you on to kind of talk about you know our sport because it's no surprise to anybody that lacrosse is a predominantly white sport and i mean go to an event and look at sidelines and you know that's just kind of the the state of our sport right now um so to kind of get us started I kind of like one thing I've never asked you is like, how did you get started with lacrosse? Like what, what state were you in? Like, where'd you go to school? Like what, what was kind of the, your initial start with the sport? That's a really good question. I think it's a, a pretty good story. So I was 15, uh, grew up in Connecticut, but I, I was in a small town, Wallingford, Connecticut. I was a day mm -hmm. student at a boarding school, Chote Rosemary Hall. And I was running track in the springtime as a third former, basically a freshman. And I was sitting on the steps of the athletic building called the Winter X. and the three, four coach, it was freshman and sophomore coach walked up to me and asked me if I'd be interested in playing lacrosse. His name was Pat Musto. And I said, sure, I'll give it a try. No problem. I had no equipment. The school gave me a helmet. I borrowed a stick. They had gloves. I borrowed some elbow pads. I had sneakers because we were in the parking lot playing back in the old days. That's what you did in the wintertime. Yeah. And, and I loved it. And I, right away, I, I fell in love with the game. I really enjoyed it. And I think the next day or that week, I went to the school store. I bought a stick and uh, my mom didn't really appreciate that because it was a, it was a significant charge to the account. I wasn't really that responsible with money then. I'm not that much more responsible with it now. So, you know, she gave me grief for it, but I, I think, I, I think about this a lot like that investment is a hundred dollars. And that, I mean, Mike, 1996, a hundred and something bucks is, yeah. is a lot of money. And you gotta remember minimum wage was like three and a quarter or something like that. That's a lot of hours to get a hundred bucks. I made 425 in my first job, Mike. So it's a lot of hours working. So that investment paid off handsomely, but in terms of the friends I've made and the things I've done in my life. And I remember, I'll never forget this. This is, I think, one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I had an aluminum stick and a high wall. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. Kids wouldn't remember what a high wall is. Yeah. And, and Pat Musto bought me a warrior, the, like the first warrior titanium shaft or it was a brine alloy shaft something like that but he brought me an awesome stick and i had it for a long time it was a really touching gift that someone gave to me when i first started playing and that and that was that i just i i kept on playing and it really worked out for me i fell in love with the game 
practiced on my own. I would walk down from my house. There was a car dealership, and I would just throw the ball off the wall. I would go to my uh, elementary school, throw the ball off the wall there. And there were camps back when I was growing up, but no recruiting camps. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I got playing. Yeah. So, I mean, you were kind of, I mean, I mean, I don't know what the, uh, in the nineties, it would been considered, but nowadays, like that'd be a late bloomer to the sport to kind of pick it up, you know, at, at that, at that point. Um, so what was kind of your experience, you know, one as a young, like trying to learn the sport, but also as a black man, um, picking up lacrosse really probably when you were, I mean, I have to imagine you were playing, especially at Choate, you're probably playing with kids who grew up playing. I mean, Connecticut's kind of a hotbed um, for the sports. So, I mean, a lot of those guys had to have been, you know, playing probably on their almost second decade at that point. Yeah. So the kids I would throw the ball around with on the weekends, one was from two were from Princeton, one was from Annapolis, uh, guys from Cheshire, kids from upstate New York, kids from Long Island. And I was new to the game and there weren't many people of color playing lacrosse in the 1990s. But at the school I attended, there were actually, there was actually one guy he was supposed to go play at Brown. I think it was there for a little, a little while. Dave Giffendorwa, he was just someone I admired so much. He was captain of the football team, captain of the basketball team, captain of the lacrosse team. He was a superb athlete, a superb lacrosse player. So I loved his game, and I modeled my game after his game. Yeah. He went on to play. I think he played at Brown for a minute. I don't know if he played there for four years, uh, but he was someone I got to I got to watch pretty closely. And I remember vividly Ira Vanterpool, who I'm friends with now, he came when he was with Norwalk to play against Choate, and I watched Ira play. And he's, so, he's someone I've coached against, and I've shared this story with him a, a number of times about it was just great to see someone like him playing. Yeah. And I remember Gaywa Schindler, he was a Native American player. He was at Avon Old Farms. I got to see him play. And he was a special lacrosse player in high school. He was unbelievable. He was awesome in college. Yeah. And so, But you are right. There were not many people of color who played lacrosse in the 1990s. There are a lot more now. It is amazing to see the growth in communities of color across the country of kids playing. And everywhere I go, and I, I used to coach with Nation United, and that was a wonderful thing mm -hmm. to be a part of with so many kids uh, who played from all over the East Coast and parts of the West Coast uh, that came together for a common cause to play the game that we love. But you are right. It, there were not many kids who looked like me who played. Yeah. Very. So what was kind of your experience like? Did you ever feel that like it was you were different for playing the sport like what was that kind of experience especially at choke well i don't want to single out choke at all you know just kind of like it because i'm sure like there might not have been camps or anything like that but what was your kind of overall experience like did you ever feel as a like, kind of an outsider playing i was really lucky because i had great i wouldn't say they knew a lot about lacrosse they were really good people and kept my love of the game going, really encouraging. So that's why I think I I just enjoyed the game so much. I had really good teammates and the kids in the team. I was really I was really good friends with. I think and I think the one thing I wanted to talk about was I was friends with kids who did lots of different things. So I didn't hang out with one particular group of kids. That doesn't make me better or worse than kids who decide to hang with people who look like them. Yeah. I just became friendly with kids who were in my classes, and as a result of just those relationships, sitting with those kids at lunch, I felt pretty comfortable playing this new game and trying something different. I think the beauty of me playing that sport was we were required to do a sport every, every I think, I wouldn't call them, we didn't have quarters, but we're, every season we had to play sport. Okay. So, you had, so you had to do something. Yeah. If you, and if you didn't like it, you could do something else. But making people do stuff they may not have been good at was the best thing for me. We have an athletic requirement at my school, but we offer so many different things kids can do to fulfill it. You end up not getting kids to try things that try things new, yeah. try new sports. 
Um, so I was really lucky, Mike. I just had some good buddies who played, and they made me feel welcome. I, I just had great teammates, and they were really good kids. Yeah. Now, um, has that experience changed at all as you've grown and then eventually moved into the coaching? Like, you know, has your experience with the sport, like, have you ever kind of experienced uh, any kind of, like, I guess, want to say racism in our sport at all? For, for sure. And I think sometimes I want to talk about secondhand incidents. I remember I was coaching and this young man. He plays at Marquette now. He faces off. He was one of my students at Blake. He was in my advisory uh, and he played for me in the summertime. And someone used used the word you shouldn't use. Yeah. A game. And, and, and rightfully so. He was really upset. Came off the field. He was crying. There was a, there was a scuffle and that happened. And I remember we addressed it in the game and I addressed it with the coach and I just say, Hey, I don't doubt this person's integrity. He wouldn't lie to me about that. He wouldn't react in this way. And I want you to do something about it. We didn't, we didn't let the moment pass. Yeah. We didn't stop the game, but I did talk to him about it after the game. And what I didn't really I didn't think the coach handled it the right way. And he should have said to me, well, you are right, Chris. I will handle this. I'll make sure this young man apologizes. Well, he handled it in a way that I didn't think it was helpful. Well, yeah. I thought he said it. And if he said, he said, and no one heard anything. It's like, listen, I don't mean want you to get defensive about it. He wouldn't have reacted this way unless someone said something like that. Right. You need to handle it appropriately. And it happened a couple of years ago when I was at Gilman. One of our student athletes said it happened to him in in all the league games, except for against two opponents, I, I don't want to tell you which people said it or not. They, they can debate it. Right. But he can't. He said it to us after the season in every league game, except for two of them. You're you're so, saying so like every game that they you that Gilman played that season against conference opponents. Uh, yeah, it happened except for in two games. Right and we, the head coach and I, Coach Matthews, went to the athletic director and we said, this happened. Uh, what are your thoughts? And he asked us, well, we should ask this young man how he'd like us to handle the situation. And he just said, well, you know what? It happened. There's nothing I could do about it. This is just the way things are. And, you know, I don't think Brooks and I were, were really satisfied with it. I know he wasn't satisfied. He's a person of integrity. Uh, Tim Holly, person of color, a tremendous leader at Gilman, someone I was really proud to work for, someone who's just a, an awesome leader. I don't think he was satisfied, but there was nothing we could do about it at that point. Yeah. And we all felt a little bit sick, sick about it. So how do you kind of handle that with, with the student, with the player who, you know, he's, I guess he sounded like he did kind of one to almost like this, put it behind him and not, not focus on it. But how do you kind of address that? Because I mean, that's gotta have an impact on a, on a young man to, to have to deal with that with people that, you know, they're, you're all playing the same sport. Like, how do you, how did you guys kind of address it with him to at least kind of, I, I don't even know. Like, how'd you guys address it with him? We apologize that it happened. And I think, if I remember correctly, Brooks and I like, man, why didn't he just tell us immediately afterwards so we could address it mm. with that coach, with those kids, so we could do something about it? And that kid could be held accountable on those teams. We were really disappointed that it happened in so many games. Uh, yeah, that just, yeah. I think we were both pretty floored uh, about that was going on in league games uh, in our city against people we know, kids we've kids I've coached outside of school, people I know who run those programs, but do not condone that behavior. Yeah, and they would be really disappointed if it was kids on their team. If they knew it, they would address it right away. Uh, they would be really upset, and those kids would be held accountable, and the league would hold hold them accountable. Yeah. So we were a little surprised they didn't bring it up with us. But you know what? We've missed an opportunity to address that with a team. We, we didn't tell them, hey, if this happens to you, you should bring up bring it up to us immediately. I think 
the kid in question did tell the captains, and the captains said, well, we'll take care of it. Maybe they addressed it privately with those. Because I don't really know what happened, but I know he got yeah. it off the chest with guys on the team, but he didn't tell the coaching staff. And I know we're going to talk about this at the end, so I, I do want to sort of talk to coaches about how to handle these situations and maybe how to address this with their teams. Okay. And, and I know, Mike, there are a lot of guys who listen to this program, a lot of kids who listen to this program, and, and they're white, and they, they probably don't have any people of color on their teams, and they, this is probably a conversation that they're not comfortable having or don't know how to have with their team but really want to. If anyone wanted to reach out to me, like, hey, Chris, don't know you. I know you coach for cherries. I know you coach your country day, but I got your number from Mike, and I was wondering if you could talk to me about how you would address this with your team. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, and, and for – I'll reiterate that anybody who wants to get in touch with Coach Garland, like if you can't get in touch with him directly, like, well, obviously, you know, now's a good enough time to, as any is like, you know, I know you're on Twitter, pretty active on Twitter. Like, do you, is that a place, good place for them to reach out to you? For sure. That'd be a great place. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Coach Garland one. Remember the disclaimer. If you don't like the Jets or Knicks, don't <laughs> just, just go away. That's it. That's you can, one disclaimer. You can just, uh, just go slide into the DMs and then right. not, you don't have to listen to the I'm actual not, Twitter. Not here. Yeah, I can't handle this or mute me. That's uh, yeah, that's an unaggressive move. Just mute me. Yeah, uh, you can always Twitter has the uh, you can always mute Jets and Knicks as a, yeah. as a mute word, so they don't have to see anything. But uh, to be serious, like if anybody does want to reach out to you, don't hesitate to reach out to me if you can't figure out you know another way to to get to them. Maybe you don't have a Twitter account, and you just want to reach out. Like I'm happy to make that connection as well. Um, so you know we kind of talked about that, and like, and you you mentioned like there's probably some kids that you know they might not have you know anybody of color on their team at all why do you think i mean lacrosse is you know anybody who doesn't know this should at you know well after this like this was a sport that was founded by native americans but you know even i mean we, the horrible incident i think it was in the nol last year where was it um lyle thompson yeah. when he was game in philadelphia where people were you know chanting you know racist things during the game and i mean it's you hear that stuff and Personally, like it, it baffles my mind. Like in, in my mind, I'm like, I can't believe we have people that still think like this. And obviously, now with everything that's going on, it just seems to be much more in the in everybody's face that you know, okay, this does happen, you know. And obviously, I'm I realize I come speaking a person of white and probably comes from a little bit of white privilege that I've never had to to deal with this. So like, I'm probably had blinders on to a lot of the stuff that has happened that you may have experienced in your life. Um, but why do you think lacrosse? Is such is so dominated by white faces. Like, I mean, I don't know when that switch would have happened, but I mean, from Native Americans to you know a predominantly white, and I mean, it has the stereotype of being you know you know kind of an upper class white sport. Like, why do you think that is? Uh, so traditionally, where the game has been played and uh, where it developed, areas of Baltimore, Long Island, even though upstate New York is predominantly white, it's been still played at some of those high schools who have been traditional powerhouses, West Genesee. Um, and, and other schools now, but it's mostly in pockets that are predominantly white and the game didn't really spread to areas where there were people of color or who were introduced to the game. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's the long and short of it. You know, also, I used to think it was about accessibility. That initial sunk cost was a deterrent. Mike, it's not expensive to play basketball. It's not expensive to play soccer. Right. Uh, right. It's not really expensive to play baseball. You get a mitt, you get a bat, people provide helmets, uh, you could share bats, right? You don't really need a lot to get going. Uh, but lacrosse, there is the stick, the cleats, the uh, like the, the the protective apparel, right? Extra sticks, heads, getting your stick strung. Like there, I think there are hurdles. Yeah. 
I actually met a few years ago with a, a woman who ran the diversity uh, at U.S. Cross. I don't know if she's there anymore. And she said, well, that's not really true anymore. She, it's just the accessibility now, getting kids to events, parents being able to get their kids to practices, and being introduced to the game at a young age with people who are qualified coaches to coach the kids. Uh, I've seen the explosive, we've all seen, excuse me, the explosive growth of Harlem lacrosse. Mm -hmm. they, they're producing kids who are going on to colleges and boarding schools uh, and who, who have just been introduced to the game for several years. So if it can happen there, it's really just a matter of getting kids to the game and showing them what can be accomplished through the sport, which has been so great to see, and people should support that nonprofit. And I'll be honest with you, if you're a coach and, and you text me or you email me and you say, Chris, what's one thing we can do to help the game? You say, that would be one thing. Do a fund drive, like raise money for Harlem Lacrosse, raise money for Owls, raise money for a program that's introducing kids to the game. Charm City, that's a program I've worked with in the past. That would be a great start for your kids. If you can't do anything else, that could be a pretty good start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll definitely uh, put a link for Harlem Lacrosse because they have been doing uh, fantastic work for, for many years now. Like I know, I, I think I remember when they first got started and they've gotten so much bigger um, yeah. over the last, you know, few years for sure. Um, you know, I do kind of want to address, you mentioned the, you used to think it was accessibility and the expense and stuff like that. I mean, I, I started kind of my reporting career kind of covering football and football is like, yeah, I mean, it's a fairly expensive sport. Like, you know, it's like there's, I mean, you don't have like a, a stick or anything like that, but I mean, there's pads and helmets and stuff like that. And some of the kids have to pay for some of that stuff to kind of, especially at the, at the young age. And I mean, like, so I guess I kind of, you know, for the, for that part, like, I mean, obviously there's like, why do you think there's the difference between those two sports? Like, so it's not all, can't all be cost, but you know, why do you think like football has kind of grown? Um, you know, because we, we, we don't see those same things. Like I think they're, you know, it's not dominated by, you know, one type of person. Right. Familiarity, uh, understanding, access to coaching leagues. I think those things make a huge difference. I think there are pop Warner football leagues all over the country yeah. and some really good, some really good ones in traditional areas, Florida, Texas, Georgia, uh, even in DMV. I mean, there's a great youth football there, phenomenal youth football there. Uh, and those people underwrite the cost of those programs for the kids. So if, if lacrosse could do the very same thing in those areas, if the kids are introduced to the sport early, they gain interest and they keep playing as long as people are there to dedicated coaches and rec programs. We probably should address that. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that, that I think is a concern in our sport, the importance and value of rec lacrosse and, of course, the importance and value of club lacrosse. I think you have to get started playing somewhere. And now, really, the really good coaches are involved more so on the club side and less so in the rec side to get kids introduced to the game early. And, yeah, you have more parents coaching. And sometimes kids just don't play anymore. They stop playing at a certain age. They get dissuaded from playing. We've seen that a lot where kids don't want to start doing something because they're not good at it. Yeah. Hey, I play a few basketball. I'm really good at that. Why would I want to stop doing that year round and start this new thing that I'm not so that I'm not really good at? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, we had a kid come out this year. He would he would hang out in my advisory. Great kid, never played before. And I said, Well, I never played before. You know, you could be as good as I was if you keep if you keep with it. And he kept playing. You know, until our season got canceled. But you got to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, I think it's probably probably easier for kids to get started at a younger age and i think you mentioned like accessibility like just being exposed to the sport and having the opportunity to play um has got to be huge i mean you mentioned baltimore like i'm sure there's no kid in growing up in baltimore that wouldn't know lacrosse you know for the most part but then again like again like i i think of 
you think of Baltimore lacrosse, you mostly think of the MIAA. Um, probably not many people are thinking of like, you know, the Dunbars or the Polytechnic or schools like that that are predominantly black that, you know, when I was growing football, like Dun or uh, covering football, like Dunbar was, you know, I mean, Tavon Austin came out of Dunbar, like, you know, some pretty great athletes. So, I mean, they're, but, you know, Tavon, like I remember asking him one time and like, I, was like, I don't think like, he had any idea what lacrosse was, but he would have been a fantastic lacrosse player with, you know, <laughs> he would have made a lot of people, he would have embarrassed a lot of people with his speed. Um, but you know, it's just gonna kind of, you know, yeah. Um, so we kind of, you touched on it a little bit. You mentioned the couple things that people could do, but like, you know, what can, you know, I'll include myself, like we as white people do to, to make our sport more inclusive. That's a really good question. And that's, I think that's a very hard question. Yeah. And I would, I would say there's obviously not one going to be one blanket thing like, Oh, go out and do this. But you know, you know so whatever you kind of came to mind when you I asked that question. Or even a couple of things. I, I, I think we have to really define, I mean, define what inclusivity means to you and your program. Do we want to see more people of color involved in the game? If that's the case, I think people involved in our sport should find a program to work with that whose goal is to get more kids playing in places where they're not playing. And what do those programs need? Do they need sticks? Do they need gloves? Do they need helmets? Do they need money? Do they need coaching? So that's the first thing we have to figure out. How can we help communities who want to start programs, start those programs? How do we make sure those programs are going to continue to operate several years uh, moving forward? So they just not play. We had it this year. We're not having it. We're not having it next year. Right. I think the best place to start is introducing the game uh, to people in schools. One of our kids, his name is Luke Waringo. He wanted to work with... Um, an elementary school in Detroit to teach them a game, get sticks for the PE class and make sure that their PE teacher knew some skills and drills for the kids and could coach them in, in school. And he would come down and help them out. I thought that was pretty admirable. Yeah. By wanted to, that would, that would be something I think if a kid wanted to do who listened to this podcast or was, or his parent was listening, that's something that could be easily done. You yeah. get some, you get some plastic sticks, you go down ground ball drills, shooting drills, and maybe three or four kids say, you know what, I want to keep doing this. And you work with those three or four kids or you go down or you find a way to get them up to where you live so they can play in a league in your town. Uh, that would be one way to get it. Just a handful of kids playing. You're not going to get 20 or 30 or you may. Right. But in just just to start to be more involved, the, the one thing I would tell people to do or to think about doing is if you're going to commit to it, commit to it. Right. If you're going to be involved with an organization, be involved and don't be a volunteerist. Like be someone who's engaged actively in helping lacrosse grow in the community and get to know people. The game is simply the vehicle to get to know people. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah that's all to be used for. Because some kids may not end up playing. They may say, Well, I don't want to do this, but I like you. As a result of getting to know you, I'm better off and you're better off. You now see the world through my eyes. You understand what my experiences are like. And lacrosse was just a way to connect the two of us. Yeah. Uh, so that that would be the important thing. Relationships matter in our game. They always have. Um, so I would suggest people, hey, if you want to get involved, be involved, but be engaged. Lacrosse is just the way to get to meet people and introduce them to our sport, but also for you to get to know them and see where they're coming from. Yeah. yeah when, uh, when I asked, you said it kind of depends on how um... – you would define in, uh, being inclusive. Like how do you, how do you kind of define it? I would say, and this is what I wanted to address at the end. You know, we've always talked about on my teams and the cherries, we don't tolerate 
uh, racist comments, homophobic comments, sexist comments. Like we have a zero tolerance policy. We catch you online, you know, a handshake or in a game, like you're off the team. And then Jake, Derek, and I said, well, that's not really good enough anymore because people were saying, well, I don't say those things. Mm -hmm. My friends may, but I don't say them, so I'm fine. And we said to our kids, that's not acceptable anymore. That's not an environment that's inclusive. That's not an environment where people feel like they're part of our team. So I think being an anti-racist, someone who's going to stand up and do the right thing when other people aren't doing the right thing. Yeah, so I think yeah. inclusivity can mean lots of different things. I think when we think about the, the lens of our game, like, hey, I'm watching this game. There are no people playing color playing. It's not really inclusive. Well, you'd be right, Mike. And yeah. that would, would be an, an observation all of us would make. But hold on for a second. What if we're having those conversations on our teams about being anti-racists, about people who are going to stand up and do the right thing in their communities, about people when they go out and get jobs and look around their office and say to their supervisor, hey, you know, our office doesn't look like the world around us. We can do something about that. Or, you know what? We need to do a better job of recruiting applicants. Look at, look at our applicant pool. It's not reflective of the world around us. We want to find highly qualified applicants that make our workplace more diverse, or even our school. I know that's the third rail of sort of our country. When we look at our schools, we're supporters of neighborhood schools, generally speaking, not we, but just sort of the, the royal we. Right. Right. And um, maybe we should say, how do we make our school look more like the world at large or the community my kids are going to work in. I don't know if that's what I want for my children, because when things like this happen, I don't want them to be insulated. So right. I want to think about inclusivity in the really, I think lacrosse is important, important to you, important to me. It's been part of my life, an important part of my life. I do want people who are listening to this and think, hold on, what's something I can do at my school, at my job, in my workplace, in my community to make it more inclusive, to bring more people into the fold? Yeah. And I mean, like hear more voices yeah yeah and you kind of i think you kind of touched on it a little bit is that as far as like you know, you're you're obviously a coach so what's the coach's role um to you know or what role do coaches have to address to kind of what's happening you know in the world at large with their team and then you touched on it a little bit but let's kind of expand on it i, I think this is really important and this is where the kids need us to help lead the way we shouldn't be out front of everything, but we have to tell them this is what we stand for. And we stand for supporting people who feel like they've been mistreated, who, who feel as if they've been left out. Yeah. We have to have a difficult conversation and listen to some things that are available online and talk to people who can help us understand about what's going on and how they feel. So I, I just a story I was thinking about when you emailed me to come on and talk, when I was in college, I was on a study abroad program. We traveled all around Europe, and one of the stops, we went to Auschwitz. And I thought, oh, this is, I, I, I'm interested in this topic. I studied it in, in history. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to visiting, and I, I know it's gonna be a somber visit, and I, I, just some place I never thought I'd, I would be able to visit before in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first part of the visit, you go and you sit down, you watch a black and white movie of the liberation by the Soviets. So you're finished with the movie, a survivor takes you on your tour. You walk mm -hmm. through the gates, and in front of us, there was a group of students from Israel, and they had Israeli flags, and they were wailing. And there were, I remember a kid, he was, he was punching the ground. And it was sobering to see that and hear that. And we were behind them for most of the trip, and every stop, you walk into one of the dormitories, and you see the suitcases, the hair, the eyeglasses. Um, uh, the, the, the gold pulled from teeth and, and just their their response made me feel a way that I've never felt before. 
I was confronted with the atrocities of World War II committed by the Nazis, and I saw what that was like for people who were hurt directly by it. Their family members, their people were massacred. Seven, six, seven million people lost their lives as a result of the Holocaust. So that, for me, was an eye-opening experience, and one I would have never understood. I was really lucky I would have never understood it at that level unless I saw and felt partly, like a part of what they felt mm -hmm. on that trip. So what can you do? Maybe as a coach, you take your team and you you you, you listen to someone who experienced police police violence. You know, I was thinking about uh, a, my good buddy. I coached both of his kids. He's a local police officer. He's a great guy, very, very close friend of mine. He's a good cop. He's a great buddy of mine. He's a great police officer. I feel for his family right now. Police mm -hmm. officers are being maligned. Uh, maybe you should hear from police officers. This is what my experience is like. Uh, this is what the experience is like of people who suffered under the police, who are over-policed. And there are people living in communities that are over-policed. And ask your team what they think systematic racism is. And think about if they think those things exist. And then confront them. Fellas, this, this exists. You, know, you saw it live on TV. A man died because the police officer had his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It happened. Yeah. Why did that happen in our country? Because he allegedly passed off a $20 bill. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It shouldn't have happened. He should still be alive today. Mr. Floyd should still be alive today, right? And I will never forget uh, him crying out for his dead mother as he passed away on camera. Yeah. I'll never forget it, the look on his face. And people should feel that kind of pain. Yeah. And they should understand for that second why people were so angry. I will not condone the looting. I will not condone the violence. I will not do that. I don't do it. But yeah. the anger, I understand. I, I totally understand it. My mother was one of those people. In 1968, she was rioting. I, I guess I don't even call it rioting. When Martin Luther King was assassinated, she was in college in Norfolk State. She was amongst the people who did that. And why was she upset? She experienced it firsthand. She went to an all-black high school. Right? She went to a historical black college. She couldn't go to University of Virginia. They didn't admit women. They didn't admit black people at the time. And I think your kids have to understand or maybe come to a better understanding of our nation's history, which I don't think is taught really well in schools. No. I think kids miss so much uh, of black history in our schools, and they can't really understand why these things are happening. It, and it bothers me, too, uh, a little bit. And I've, and I've heard this online. I've seen it online. Well, why, why aren't people of color concerned about black on black violence? We are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the entire world is. Right. Uh, but you should ask the question. Well, hold on for a second. Why is violence so high in these communities? Why are these communities really poor? Why are these communities underserved? Why are these communities? Why do these communities have the worst schools? Why do these communities? Why do these communities have high, the highest unemployment? Why do these communities have so many people who are in prison? Well, it's not because people are criminals or all of them are criminals or all yeah. of them are violent or they don't want to do well in school. There are reasons for it. There are reasons for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, you're. I think I would echo your experience with uh, Auschwitz was kind of almost my experience. So like I, I forced myself to watch the George Floyd video more than once, not because I, I wanted to, but because like personally, like I was so horrified and it was one of those, like, like I know the first time I watched it, like I just, I didn't even realize I was crying when I was watching it. Cause you realize at some point, like you're watching a man be murdered. And then it's just like, and then at some point they're like, I just got angry. Like I just got, very pissed off and i'm like obviously pissed at the the cop who was doing it but then you realize like there's other people around like there's other officers around and like nobody stepped in 
to do the right thing. And, you know, I'm not going to get in a debate about cops and everything. Right. You can go online and you can watch all that and you can make up your own mind. Um, but, you know, kind of one of like kind of a point you touched on, it was like, I think one of the things like we can do is keeping an open mind is going to be one of the, cause I've seen so many people and, you know, I've unfortunately, like I know people that, um, I have contact with in my, my everyday life. I don't want to call anybody out, but like there's people that like, their mind is already made up or they already have so many preconceived notions of what things are in the world that they don't even really kind of see they can't see it from the other perspective i mean uh the kimberly jones video that i think went off went viral uh a few days ago probably a few days ago from um when we're recording this uh where she was talking about you know just kind of you know tulsa and rosewood and she had mentioned like social contract with trevor noah on the daily show had mentioned as well and i remember thinking to myself and i had a coworker message that she had never heard about tulsa and she's you know, a couple decades older than me. And I can, I told her, I was like, and she was like, I didn't find out about it until like, you know, a few months ago when I looked it up somewhere and she had somehow come across it. And I was like, I was like, I didn't hear about it till I watched Watchmen, the HBO show. I was oh, like, yeah. and yeah, I thought yeah. it was like, and I thought it was like a fictional, I think, you know, it's Watchmen. It's about, you know, comic book heroes and stuff like that. But they mentioned, you know, Black Wall Street and Tulsa. And I think it was the behind the scenes of that first episode. And they talked about like, this really happened. And I'm sitting in the back of my mind. I'm like, I don't remember. Like, I went to a, a South Johnson High School in you know, Four Oaks, North Carolina. I'm like, that wasn't taught in my history classes. Like, that stuff doesn't come up. And you kind of start to think about that stuff. I'm like, what What else was I never taught? What else was I not learned? Because, I mean, my class was predominantly white. Like, all my classes were, like, you know, it was, it was, you just kind of think, like, for me personally, like, I just kind of had that moment. I was like, what else were we not taught? And like, so for me, it's like, and I'll be honest, like it's been like I mentioned before we started talking, um, I was listening to Emmanuel Aocho, who's doing the uncomfortable conversation with a black man. And it's like one of those things and it, it some of it is uncomfortable because you get told about like white privilege and stuff like that. And you're just like, I my brother and I talked the other day and we were like, you know, we feel like we were raised right. Like we never saw that. But then you realize, like, you know, maybe this kind of turning your blind eye and be like, you know, I don't I don't see color like that's not really the right answer either. So. I think from, you know, coming from my perspective, I think anybody listening to this, like if you're, you know, it's keep an open mind. Like you have to listen to people and understand, you know, what they're going through before you can make up your mind about, you know, what should and should not be done. I mean, I think we can all agree that what happened to George Floyd should never have been done. Crime flat out. Like, I think it's a pretty easy open case in my mind. But, you know, you mentioned with that in mind, keeping an open mind and you mentioned like read and listen, like. Is there any place you would direct people to be like, hey, if you don't know where to start, like, try, you know, start here? That's a, a, a really good question. And I was part of a workshop run by Joe Ehrman, and the video is actually on YouTube. Okay. Uh, I think it's titled For Developing a Coherent Racial Narrative. And, it, and again, I could actually just uh, tag you in the link on yeah. Twitter and you could retweet it. And he takes you through a series of things coaches should do in order to develop a racial narrative and go back in their own pasts and think about their story. And the quote that's in the PowerPoint, that's really good. Every coach is a story that fits between two covers to be empathetic, to be instructive and to have impact as coaches. We must have to find our own narratives first, understand them, contain them and bind them. If you want to be a better coach, be a better you. And he takes you through a series of things that coaches should do in order to talk to their teams 
about race, their own experience, their own racial narrative. And he asked the coaches in the video, share that story with two people. The example I remember uh, he was working through, uh, the first time you heard the N-word, and he tells us the story the first time he heard it. I was actually at uh, uh, my, my, my great friend's house. I coached his son. Uh, he, he lives up in Heartland, and it, my kids go swimming up there. He's, he's really great to us, really great, really great buddy of mine. And uh, he was telling me about this time when he was in high school. Uh, he brought some buddies over to go swimming in the lake. They just finished a basketball game. He went into his house. They were several black guys. A woman across the street called the police. The police showed up in three cruisers. And he's like, oh, man, these are just my buddies. We came in to swim. Right. The woman called the police and there were three black kids swimming in the lake. They must be up to no good. And I mean, that is a story about his racial narrative. He understood and like he knew something was wrong and that woman shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Because the only reason she called the police was because of the color of their skin. So he takes people through a series of exercises to do. To do. And the reason why I would point people to that particular workshop or that particular video is I remember an anecdote Dom Starger was telling about his wife and um, he had asked her, hey, where's my shirt? And she said to him, do your own laundry, right? I don't do your laundry. And I think this is the thing I would want to tell coaches. You've got to do your own laundry first. You have to figure out who you are in your own past before you can have this conversation with your team. And you may share with your team some uncomfortable truths about your past. I was tolerant of it. I heard that word. I may have used that word, and I didn't say anything about it when I was a kid, and I know it was wrong. Yeah. And I'm telling yeah. you it was wrong now as an older person, and I don't want you to do that. And we want to stand up for something and do the right thing, and not saying those terrible words isn't enough anymore. You have to stand up against it. You have to do something about it. Yeah. And that may alienate you from your friends. You know, I coach a lot of kids from very rural parts of Michigan. Rural. There are. I, I, listen, I know there are no black teachers. I know there are no black teachers in the communities. Mm -hmm. I know there are very few people of color living in their communities. I know I'm probably the only person of color who will be in a position of authority over them, authority, right, in their lives. And that experience for them has to be generally positive. I have to make sure those kids know I am a resource for them, an advocate for them, and I care deeply about them. So in the future, their experiences or their, like I've had a positive experience with a person of color. Like yeah. I, know, I know what that looks like. I do not make stereotypes, generalizations, sweeping generalizations about black people because I had someone who I worked with who I cared deeply about me. I'm, I'm better off than maybe some of my classmates are. And I, that is the only thing I really care about. Mike, I've thought a lot about what's happened and what we do. And you know what? Our team's pretty good. We got some good kids. It's yeah. fun. You know, we go to good events. Our kids go and play in college. Uh, you know, that's starting to matter a lot less to me now because of everything that's happened. And yeah. I think if we can turn these kids or help be a part of their lives that they're better as a result of the experience. And they're going to be better lacrosse players. They're playing against the other best kids in the state. It's going to happen regardless. Right. If they're like, man, coach said something to me today that made me think about it. And I'm not going to stand for this anymore in my school. I'm going to be a better leader. I'm not going to allow that in my presence. I'm, yeah. going to, I'm going to be more empathetic. I'm going to make sure I listen to these people's stories. And if someone in my class says something that's intolerant or if someone in my class says something that's racist, I'm going to say that we don't, we don't stand for that here. Yeah. There may not be people who look like that around here, but we don't stand for it in our team, in our community, or in my friend group. And if that's how you behave, then, then later. We wish you well. Yeah. And I, I, wish, I wish the kids in our program did that. If that's the one thing they learned from me, then I, and I, and I hope they do that. Yeah. Um, I know this wasn't on our, our list of uh, questions, but you mentioned something I found interesting. You mentioned that you feel like you have, um, you didn't say obligation, but you know, because you're, 
a man of color and that, you know, some of these kids, like you may be the first black man that they have kind of come across with and been in a position of authority. Do you feel this, you know, obligation to kind of make sure they have a positive experience with you? Is that, is that hard? Like, I, I you know, I listen to that and I'm like, it, there's part of me, I'm like, it shouldn't have to be that way because, you know, they've had, you know, plenty of white teachers and I'm going to go out on a limb that probably none of those men or women had that thought. They didn't think like, oh, I got to make sure I had this kid has a positive experience with me because they're going to see another white person later on right. down the road. And I don't want them to think poor of me. Right. Like that right there is just one big difference. Like, is, is that hard? Like when you say that, like, have you ever thought about it? like that? I mean, that, to me, that seems it's unfair. Unfair for you that, you know, that, I mean, cause that seems like, you know, a lot of pressure, but you know, have, you know, how do you feel about it? Uh, it may very well be, but maybe that's the whole point of this, Mike. Maybe that's the whole reason I'm here. And, you know, I I don't tend to think like or speak like that, but, Mm -hmm. but maybe as a result of, of me being a a really good role model, uh, that I, that I've helped some kid change his perception of people of color or some family. I don't, and I don't know. I wouldn't hear that. Right. Uh, but, but maybe that's worked. I, I remember, and this was, and this isn't again, virtue signaling. And I hate that, but there's a kid in our program, you know, he had, uh, they, uh, the story, the details story are getting a little fuzzy, but he kind of wrote a letter thanking me, you know, for everything I've done for him. And he was, you know, he's like, when I, when he, I started coaching him, he was like a fifth or sixth grader, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, and it was, you know, I don't, I didn't, I just coached him and yeah. I really liked working with him. He had a great attitude and I, I just really enjoyed my time with him. And he always appreciated that. And he, and he thanked me and, and the guys tend to do that. And I, and I hope that I've had a, 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 and again, this is the only hope I have that with the, kid, the kids in our program, the kids I work with in school that when they're done, they can say that. And they remember me as someone who was a positive role model who did things right by them. Now, Mike, it's not all kids because some don't like me and, and that's okay too. Right. Uh, <laughs> You know, they don't, and that's, and that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But it's more often than not, I want the kids to say, well, I know I can rely on this person. He's proven himself to be honorable, a man of integrity. He's gotten the most out of me. He's expressed concern for me. He knows my family. He wants the best for me. And as a result of having a positive experience with this person, I associate positive feelings or I've been exposed to people of color who maybe don't, aren't stereotypically like what you'd see on TV. And stereotypes aren't wrong. They're just incomplete. Right. They're incomplete sto- people's stories. Yeah. All right. Um, well, you know, I kind of do want to leave it. Like, is there anything that we didn't cover or anything that we didn't mention that you want to make sure gets expressed today? I do. I, I think for people who may be uncomfortable with the conversation, uh, I think it's time to begin getting a little more comfortable. Uh, coaches should think about doing one thing that connects their student athletes with people who don't look like them and developing lasting relationships, hopefully lasting relationships that begin to break down the walls between us, getting your kids involved. And this isn't political, Mike. There's nothing political about this conversation. This yeah. is the, just the right thing to do. And I hope yeah. people understand that, uh, that if there are people out there who are being, again, who are being ill-treated, that we should do something about it. And yeah. you should get involved in your community. Find something for your team to do. And my buddy and I, Brandon Childs, were talking about this you know, how can we serve the people in our communities better? How can we serve our team better by listening to people, by having these conversations? And the one thing I want to go back to kind of doing your own laundry, and I've spoken to a couple of coaches who are friends of mine, friend of mine, friends of mine about, hey, don't put the kids of color on your team on the spot. Don't ask them 
to tell the kids on the team how they feel about what's going on. They're wanting for the kids on the team to to empathize with them mm-hmm. and to tell them that they don't what's happening isn't right and they want to help be part of the solution. And the coach has got to lead the way. And so there are lots of resources out there. One, I'll just tag you in though, and you can retweet. The video is really helpful. And coaches got to do their own laundry. There's plenty of information out there. You could start in one place and then continue to build. But it's really on the, the shoulders of the coach to, to build his repertoire. Like you go to IMLCA, you go to the U.S. Lacrosse Coaches Convention. There are lots of things coaches can do to make their kids better. I mean, it, really, if you want to be a better coach, be a better you. And that's a lifelong journey for all of us. And I've been really fortunate, Mike. I've had some great, great people who've worked with me. I've coached at some great high schools, and and I, you know, I'm I'm really lucky that I've been I've I've lived a pretty charmed lacrosse life. Yeah. Um. So just to kind of finish up again, you know, in case anybody missed it, where can they find you uh, online if they want to reach out to you again? Coach Garland one at Twitter on Twitter, and then uh, my in my email cgarland at dcds.edu. All right, Coach, thank you so much um, for, for being on today. I know, and like, hopefully everybody learned something um, from, from your conversation. I can't thank you enough for, for willing to come on and talk about this. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Mike. All right, you, you have a good evening. You as well. All right, bye.